In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. As some of you know, I am a theater geek and a musical theater geek to boot. I moved to New York all those years ago, primarily for the theater, which has made Stephen Sondheim's death an occasion of real sadness for me. In the coming days, I will be streaming performances of all the shows I've loved, singing along loudly, just so you know. But a different genre of musical theater has arisen for me this year, as actually it did last. Last year, in case you have forgotten, was our first COVID Christmas. That has a terrible sound to it, doesn't it? Welcome to the advent of our second one. This year will be, I pray and actually trust, better. We have vaccines and boosters and kids are now being vaccinated. We had none of that last year. But still, it's not exactly what we hoped for. Lists we checked twice ought to be for Santa, not about whether we have a mask handy, hand sanitizer in easy reach, our COVID cards at the ready, if we walk into a restaurant and our PCR test results in hand as we head to the airports. Ugh. So just like last year, I have put away my decades-long aversion to the ever-earlier appearance of Christmas decorations. Twinkling lights coming out before Thanksgiving, I'm in. And if the Christmas carols and even the schlocky Christmas songs are playing everywhere, I'm actually okay with that too. Indeed, I find myself hearing another show tune in my head, and I did last year, and I maybe told you last year. It's from a great musical comedy of another era. It's from Mame. And the refrain for that song is this, yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Amen to that. But it's not what we get. Even Advent feels like it's being messed with. As one of my colleagues texted this week when we were kibitzing about preaching, this Omicron variant is really messing with my hope and expectation. Yep, I'm into that too. But thank God, quite literally, for Advent, the season into which we enter today, for in this season, God knows, is all about messing with hope and expectation. In truth, it is this season that likes to put hope and despair right next to each other, when we want to pretend that those two, hope and despair, cannot possibly coexist. I invite you now to pull out those black Bibles that are in your pews, we haven't done this for a while, and find today's passage. It's in chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel, and because this is the whole Bible with the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, you'll find Luke's Gospel in the last quarter of the Bible, sandwiched between Mark's Gospel and John's. I'm sure you know that, but just in case. And Luke's Gospel has 24 chapters, so it's near the end of his, 
chapter 21. I believe context is everything. So now that you've found Luke 21 on page 65, please flip over to page 66 to Luke 22. What's the heading? The plot to kill Jesus. In that one chapter, we are getting the Lord's Supper. We are getting Peter's denial being predicted. We are having Jesus praying in Gethsemane. We have Jesus' arrest. We have Peter actually denying him. We have Jesus before the council. It's a lot for one chapter. But it means that what we're hearing today in this gospel reading is really just a day or so before Jesus' crucifixion. That's what's ahead. But what's happened before, earlier in chapter 21? And I invite you to take a look back there, back on page 64 and 65. The disciples and Jesus have been together in Jerusalem. And frankly, if we're honest, the disciples' focus has been on what might actually be described as sightseeing. They've been wowed by the magnificence of the temple, and they were mighty excited a few days earlier by Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. But Jesus, as the saying goes, knows what time it is. He knows time is running out. So we have our oblivious disciples, we have the crucifixion just ahead, and we have Jesus talking. What does he share with his disciples? What seems like all kinds of bad news. He's already told them the temple they admire will be destroyed without one stone standing upon another. And now he speaks about the end of the world as they know it. They don't get it, but in another 24 hours they will. As their champion is led off, convicted in a show trial, and then killed. And not just killed, but agonizingly crucified by the Romans. For the end of the world can come with those amazing signs on earth that Jesus describes. Wars and famine, fire and flood. And we know those too. But it can and often does come to us when our personal world comes crashing down. Read the papers and it can seem like the end of the world. Look at some of the times in your life and you've lost a relationship, lost a job, gotten a terrible diagnosis, had someone you love die. That feels like the end of the world too. So the end of the world. There's a saying meant as a kind of a joke that Christians tell about the end of the world. Don't get too excited, it's a Christian joke and jokes aren't really our forte. But it's this. Quick, Jesus is coming, look busy. Which means we better look like we're knocking ourselves out doing Jesus' work when he comes again. It's not much of a joke, 
and it's not true. Jesus actually says something quite different. World coming to an end, cataclysm everywhere, destruction all around the world or your world in turmoil. Raise your head, Jesus says. Raise your head, look up, not to heaven, not to some ultimate escape. Jesus doesn't do escapism. God doesn't do escapism. But raise your head, he says, as one fine preacher has written, that despair and hope belong together is the very context of the gospel message, for optimism cannot handle what is wrong. Neither can whistling in the dark or twinkling lights or a search for heaven above. But look up, raise your head, look into the face of love, look at Jesus. That's what he's been trying to get the disciples to do all along. Look at Jesus. In just a day or so, the disciples will see and hear about the worst thing they can imagine, something they have steadfastly refused to believe could happen. Jesus hanging on a cross. Many of them couldn't even look. We will want to look away too, but don't. For if we look, as the few disciples who stuck around looked, we will begin to see the depth and breadth of God's love for us. In anguish, Jesus spoke words of forgiveness to those who were killing him and offers the same to the criminals on either side of him, though they were guilty of their crimes and he is guilty of nothing. His arms are stretched as wide as can be, stretched so wide that it looks like they could, and in fact do, encompass the whole world. When we look up, when we raise our heads and look into the face of a love so strong that death cannot diminish it, or contain it, we will also find ourselves with the disciples in every age who stare open-mouthed at an empty tomb and then up into the face of the risen Lord. Optimism can't handle what's wrong. Despair and hope are the context of the gospel. But if optimism cannot handle what is wrong, sacrificial love can. On that cross where despair and hope converge and love claims the victory. It's Advent. Let's raise our heads. Let's look up and see Jesus. Amen.